Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast episode of Where Does Your Journey Stem From, hosted by myself, Dr. Karina Minardi. Today, we are joined by an exceptional scientist, Natalie, who is a graduate student at Texas A&M University. Let's welcome to the stage, Natalie. Hey, Natalie, how's it going? Hi, Karina. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So Natalie Coleman is a PhD student at the Civil and Environmental Engineering Department at Texas A&M University under the Construction Engineering Management Program. She's a graduate research assistant at urbanresilience.ai. Research examines the social disparities and risk inequalities associated with disruptions in infrastructure services during the disaster impact. She's particularly interested in integrating the physical and social vulnerabilities of impacted communities to promote equitable infrastructure practices. Disaster research to understand how communities recover after natural disasters and hazards such as Hurricane Harvey, Winter Storm Uri, and Hurricane Ida. This includes quantifying system losses, promoting data transparency, and emphasizing human values in the management and restoration of infrastructure. She currently has 11 accepted journal articles in Sustainable Cities and Society, the International Journal of Disaster Risk Reduction, and Scientific Reports. Props to her. For her research, she has been awarded the NSF Graduate Research Fellowship, the Aviles Johnson Fellowship, and the PEO Scholar Award. Coleman is the president of the Women in Science and Engineering a committee member for the Civil and Environmental Engineering Graduate Student Association, and Bill Anderson Fund Fellow. Coleman is passionate about promoting the next generation of students, and she has mentored over 25 undergraduates, volunteered for the Undergraduate Research Division at the university, and advocated for research funds as an Aura Scholar. She regularly presents to K-12 schools with the belief that anyone can be a researcher. That's a powerful message. So welcome again, Natalie. We're excited to have you. Um, And thank you again for for joining us and giving us a little bit of a bio um, as to your background. But I want to know more about you and who you are. So tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, I'm from uh, Laredo, Texas, which is a border town between uh, Texas and Mexico. So Uh, I grew up there my whole life before I moved over to College Station, um, where I got my undergrad in civil engineering. Um, Started getting involved in undergraduate research after Hurricane Harvey um, hit Texas. Mostly did work in the Houston area. And so I've been working on my PhD for the last four years now (laughs) and just trying to um, stay up to date with with uh figuring out like my whole life i guess if that's how you can phrase it um but besides research and all that uh really loved reading i'm actually like in a monthly book club with a couple of my civil engineering friends from undergrad so we've been keeping that up pretty well um love to go thrift store shopping scrapbooking um and yeah that's just kind of the introduction about myself that's really cool. And I'm, I'm excited. I was on a podcast a couple days ago and we were talking about reading and how it's really hard to keep up with reading in graduate school because you're reading so much science. It's, so that's props to you for, for having a book club and keeping up with that. Um, 
how did you get introduced to STEM and or civil engineering then prior to your undergraduate experience or yeah, prior to your undergraduate experience? I think in high school, I had the chance to shadow a civil engineer um, in Laredo. They had this like program where you could shadow professionals. Um, at the time, I didn't really know what I wanted to do in college. Um, I knew that I had to go to college, just wasn't quite sure in what. Um, was really interested in math and science, but um, when I was following around the civil engineer for the day, I really realized I've always been fascinated with structures and buildings and just how they're both very prominent in our lives, but we can tend to sort of ignore them. You know, we don't really think about the road not working or the power not coming on. Um, but then you notice that they're there and, you know, it's hard to miss. So apply to the engineering program at AM. Uh, you start off in general engineering. And then that first year you have um, time to sort of get familiar with other engineering majors and kept going to a lot of the civil engineering based seminars and getting really interested and involved. And so I knew that that was the perfect degree for me. Um, and I've loved it ever since. So you, you said your school had a um, shadowing program. And I'm curious about that. Who else did you shadow? Was this just a one one time thing? Um, how did they match you with, you know, areas? Yeah, so it was actually a one-time thing that they did for uh, several high school students in Laredo. I think it was through the uh, New Optimus Club, I believe. Um, initially, I was supposed to be shadowing somebody else. And then I remember uh, waiting in the lobby for a while and then them saying, uh, we have this last minute match for you. <laughs> and so uh, I got along really well with her. She was able to take me to the... Uh, wastewater treatment plant in Laredo. Um, and from there, just started getting more and more interested um, in structures. Um, I will say I, I I did take a lot of structures classes and it's needed for my degree, but I'm not in the structures route. Uh, I like looking at buildings, but calculating the forces and all that is just a lot. <laughs> so I'm more in the construction management side of things, but uh, still a civil engineer at heart. That's really fascinating because I was um, thinking a lot about um, matching careers or introducing, you know, high school students to careers. And how do you actually do that beyond just um, reading about a career, like actually having and and may, maybe all the way to on the spectrum to an internship. But I think shadowing is really powerful because you actually live and breathe what the person is doing on a daily basis. Um, so that's that's really powerful. Um, so tell us a little bit about your undergraduate experience. Um, you know, if you didn't know necessarily what you wanted to do, how did you make that determination? So I think uh, at A&M, it's a lot easier to get started in the engineering fields um, than try to do another major and, and test into it. And so I started engineering. Um, the first year was personally really difficult for me academically. Um, I loved my high school, loved my high school teachers, but I think just the area I was in and the type of high school I went to, I wasn't as prepared for the math and science classes uh, like some other of my friends. And so 
learned for the first time how to do calculus, learned how to do physics because I did a general physics class in high school, but nothing that was prepared for the classes. So that first year was really testing me to see if I wanted to stay in engineering. Um, luckily, I got really connected to these other civil engineering uh, girls who I'm still connected with. They're the ones that I do the monthly book clubs with. Um, and being able to study with them, being able to bounce off uh, ideas and just uh, stay persistent um, really helped me succeed that first year. Uh, I remember calling home that first year and telling my dad that <laughs> I was not going to make it in the program. And he sort of reminded me that uh, the other students had a year or two on me to learn this material and that once we got to material where none of us were familiar with, like my study habits, uh, my determination, we were going to be uh, at the same level and catch up. And so I think that really helped a lot. Um, and like I said, A&M has a program where the first year you're not really in a specific engineering major, you have to apply to a specific one. Um, so I went to a couple of the civil uh, seminars, really liked what people were doing. Um, talked to some students that were more far along in their degree program um, and realized that I was more interested towards that. Um, it wasn't until I started doing undergraduate research that I really wanted to do a little bit more of the data science part of civil engineering um, that has been gaining more and more popularity. Um, but yeah, the, that first year I think was really critical in whether or not I was even going to stay in engineering. Well, there's the, the core curriculum plus on top of that study habits, plus on top of that, what is your background? You know, are you be, are you teaching your stuff, yourself stuff from scratch? Um, are you really learning stuff that maybe you didn't completely grasp before? Um, but then there's, that's the coursework part, right? And then there's the research part. So talk to us a little bit about your introduction to research and I think what what you find fulfilling, I think, in civil engineering research. I was very fortunate to have a, we call him PhD student mentor that kind of guided me through the research. Um, I saw the, the sort of snippet of the research project in the research lab at like an engineering research fair that they had for students. And so I reached out to the professor, uh, Dr. Ali Mostafavi, um, let him know that I was interested in civil engineering, but at the time didn't have any um, research skills, um, but I was really passionate. And I think he uh, took a chance on me, put me with a PhD mentor named his, uh, now Dr. Amir Ismailian. Um, and he kind of taught me a little bit more about um, this social side of civil engineering that wasn't really taught in my classes. So this idea that certain people or certain groups aren't able to get equal access to uh, engineering systems, especially during times of disaster, um, which I had sort of seen growing up in a more lower income area in Laredo, um, you know, the the area is just not as maintained um, as other areas. And so I, for me, that really resonated with me, um, how people can struggle to get what they need um, when in times when probably that need is the greatest. Um, so he taught me a little bit more about 
the literature going into it. So I read a lot of um, not only civil engineering research, but a lot of disaster research, uh, social science research that goes into it um, and sort of eased me into the statistics side of things, survey development. Um, so every semester that kept uh, going on, I got more and more interested and more involved in the research. Um, so for me, it was a gradual process of first understanding why the research was important. Um, I personally found a strong connection to it uh, because of my background and then just so slowly gained the skills that I needed um, to be successful in research. I think your, your story is um, not unique in the fact that you have that sort of um, learning um, increase of, of acquiring more and more skills with time. Um, and I think the, so there's that in addition to um, the, most people do actually get introduced to research through happenstance, you know? And um, so tell us a little bit more, more about how did you actually meet that PI um, to understand, you know, I want to do research with you. You know, what kind of lent itself? How did the conversation go? Yeah, I think um, so at the engineering fair, I had actually reached out to a couple of professors, uh, drafted a, a type of email saying, you know, I'm a sophomore student in civil engineering. These are the classes I've taken. This is my resume, which probably at the time, if I think about that email, I probably made a lot of mistakes, but uh, reached out to the professor and then he reached out to me, said that he was interested in an in-person interview. Um, and so we were able to talk about what I was interested in um, at the in-person interview, but he also made it clear what kind of projects he was involved in. Um, I also did some prior reading before the interview, um, just kind of Googled his name, saw what kind of research he was doing. So uh, he was aware that I had read his uh publications, which is something I tell um, some of my, uh, some other people if they're interested in research, you know, if you find a professor that you're really um, passionate about and that you want to get connected to, send them an email, first of all, and if they were, and, you know, make sure that you cite their work, like, you know what you're talking about. Because um, the big thing with researchers is that they like to talk about their research. So <laughs> if you're able to sort of bring that into the conversation. At least it gets it a little bit more started. Um, you know, at the time I had just reached out and I didn't have a lot of strong research skills, um, but I was able to develop it through time. And so I think a lot of people think that they need to have a strong skill set before they even reach out. But yeah, they, they don't need to at all. I feel like if you show that you're passionate about it, that's going to uh, take you a lot farther than you realize. Well, what I appreciate about you is that you took initiative to actually reach out to professors. And even if the email was horrible, air quotes, horrible, um, you know, you still took the initiative. And I think that that's not only highly appreciated, but it also shows a sense of drive of willingness to learn too, which I think is um, 
tantamount and it's not leaving it up to chance either because I'm sure you selected which professors you wanted to contact based off of what they were doing as well. Um, <clears throat> which is, you know, um, I think good in the fact that you knew going in what you wanted to do. Um, so tell us now, I think a little bit about what you're focused on right now. Tell us about your research, sort of your, I mean, we already talked a little bit about it from their bio. Um, so if you could give us an overview and then we'll talk a little bit more in specifics. Yeah. So one of my first research projects was trying to understand um, this idea of which types of uh, people and populations were most affected after infrastructure outages during Hurricane Harvey. So focus more on um, road, like flooded roads, power outages, communication outages. Um, and so we surveyed um, about 2000 people in Harris County um, and asked them kind of what was their level of hardship? How many days did they go without infrastructure? Um, what was their level of tolerance? So the idea that I uh, try to explain tolerance is if you go home right now and you find that the power is out, how many days can you last without power um, is that idea of tolerance. And so looking at that, we were able to see that um, lower income communities and minority communities were most affected um, by these service outages. Um, and so I thought I was going to be doing a continuation of that in my graduate research. Um, but what I sort of got moved into more is trying to find a way to uh, quantify those losses um, besides survey data. So survey data is very important, um, but it can have uh, a couple of issues in terms of the time it takes to collect the data, um, memory bias, um, participants may not wanna um, be asked these questions right away, especially when they're dealing with losses. And so, um, we're trying to use more, uh, I would say, human mobility data um, to see if people can access their essential and non-essential services. So um, can people go back to their grocery stores or to their medical facilities in a reasonable amount of time? Um, it's sort of the way that I, I try to explain it. And coupled into that is still that idea of understanding uh, equity standards, trying to blend in some data science into it. Um, so I'd love to elaborate on it. I do have a question about um, tolerance. Um, mm -hmm. So you said you define it as how many days without power could one last for a family or household. Um, does that, and I'm just curious, I mean, is that sustenance? Is that power or... Um, not ground power, but like generator power, is that psychological? Is that emotional? Like, how do you actually quantify all of those factors? Because I, I would assume that part of that is part of tolerance. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think so that sort of research with tolerance is more that my PhD mentor, uh, Dr. Smalian worked on, but I was in a couple of co-author papers with him. And the idea is that we asked people this question of how many days can you last without power? Um, and then also asked other questions based off of their uh, demographic information, their risk perception. Did they have alternate 
to the service, like you mentioned, power generators. Um, some people filled up their bathtubs um, to have water or they had water tanks or even something as simple as bottled water or candles and uh, flashlights. We tried to um, put them all into a model and see if those influence the, the tolerance level of people. So we tended to find that um, people who had power generators had a higher level of tolerance, um, but also people who had power generators were more likely to be higher income. Um, but they were also more likely to have experienced the storm before. And so you factor in that experience, those um, demographic features, um, that preparedness. So it all kind of uh, fits together. Um, I know that there are probably a lot more uh, social science models out there that can explain into preparedness and all of that, but that's just kind of uh, the interpretation of it. And then I guess another question for the, the health enthusiast in me is, you know, when you think about social determinants of health, in conjunction with socioeconomic status in defining tolerance. Um, do you also look at sort of health trends with sort of things, um, disease burden post-disaster? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I know that with the survey data, we did ask people if they um, had a loved one that they were dependent on, if they had a chronic medical condition, um, if they had mental and or physical health issues. Um, so I, I really wish sometimes I could go back and, you know, add more questions and perspectives into that study. Um, but you bring up a really good point in terms of health. Um, something I didn't really mention in my bio was that I was involved in a couple of projects related to um, the COVID-19 pandemic and trying to see if there was um, any sort of disparities between people's ability to um, socially distance themselves um, during the pandemic. So we actually used uh, mobility data to see if people could um, distance themselves. And we found that lower income communities were not able to as much, um, which might be because, you know, a lot of them work the uh, jobs that are more classified under the essential service category. So they weren't able to socially distance as much or work from home or, um, so it's just, there's a lot of different factors when you talk about the disaster research space, you know, you have engineering, but you also have health and well-being and, uh, things that I haven't even touched upon, but are really important, uh, fields on their own, like community development and, uh, policy. So it's just a lot into one. When I think of it too, as, as a sort of cyclical in nature too, because they also, they impact one another um, and they um, have this sort of, you know, health impacts your social determinants, which also impacts your, um, you know, um, transportation, which also impacts your health and, and so on and so forth. And so it creates sort of this cyclical vicious cycle um, for lack of a better word. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you're currently working on then, hypotheses? You know, what is your current hypotheses? Let's talk about current work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so one of my current research projects is trying to take this idea of um, 
the, the phrase that I'm using is uh, lifestyle behavior related to infrastructure services. So a lot of the infrastructure services looked at from the physical point of view. Um, lifestyle is kind of this idea that people have different routines and habits that they do to access their essential and non-essential services. So they tend to maybe go to the grocery store um, three times a month or go to their local gym, you know, twice a week. And so those are things that get um, impacted in the middle of a disaster. And so that's something that I've sort of tried to quantify using that um, human mobility data, seeing if people's lifestyle changes um, after a disaster. Um, and I know the term has different meaning in like health and like economics, but the, the way I'm using it is more, how can we bridge the uh, physical system of infrastructure with the societal needs that people have on those systems. So what is your, your current hypothesis? Give us an, an example. Yeah, so I think some examples that I have is that uh, people have specific uh, lifestyle. So each person has a particular um, way that they interact with infrastructure systems. And you might be able to uh, my hypothesis is that people in similar areas or of similar demographics have similar lifestyles. And so if you can understand the lifestyle of people, you can sort of target uh, certain areas to be able to um, help them after disaster. So if this area has greater dependence on grocery stores, you might target those areas for uh, food accessibility or if another area is more dependent on um, medical facilities, because it has a higher elderly population, you might be able to target that one more for medical access. Um, those are just kind of ideas in my head. <laughs> As of now, I've just been sort of using more exploratory and uh, unsupervised learning to try to bring everything together. Um, so I hypothesized that you know, initially I thought that these connections would be most understood, but now that I'm looking into the research, I'm realizing I might need some more uh, complex data tools to really answer the questions that I'm looking for. Well, and so I was taking notes as you were saying that, and one, I guess the first thing that kind of popped up into my head was geographical region. Um, you have not only urban versus suburban versus rural, but you also have different parts of the country. And so I was thinking, you know, are you, are you thinking about modeling and creating a sort of model structure? So that can be then transposed given certain parameters and certain sort of variables. Um, then you can essentially kind of advise, um, you know, FEMA for certain areas. Is that kind of the use case? Yeah, I think that that's the, the ultimate goal is trying to, um, right now we're focusing on Harris County because, you know, it's a large population. It keeps getting impacted by disasters over and over again, not only with the flooding, but also COVID-19 and the winter storm URI that happened in Texas. Um, and so it's a good space to sort of understand those different interactions. Um, the, uh, I don't want to say issue, but sort of some things to consider when you're trying to apply the model elsewhere is, you know, Harris County has its own demographics and its own, it's very urban. So if you're trying to apply it to a more rural area um, or even to uh, an area 
uh, up north that has different um, political and government structures that might play into it. Um, but that would be the the ultimate goal is being able to to transfer this model elsewhere. Um, and also, you know, rural communities are don't have as much data availability as urban areas. And so that's something else to consider. Um, would it necessarily be a, a situation where we transfer the direct model or will we transfer the methodology or where we transfer some, you know, general key insights, maybe a general toolkit? Um, that's something that I hope to continue um, in the future. When I think the, the other point to that is most of your work does is focused on sort of post-disaster. Um, and so when you think about post-disaster, you can have, you know, Kansas tornadoes, you can have, I'm in Washington, and so snowstorms, um, or even the Northeast. And then how do you juxtapose, you know, tornadoes versus snowstorms versus hurricanes? And are those, are there ubiquitous factors that maybe you could, you know, change in the model or not? I don't know. Mm -hmm. No, and you bring up an excellent point because a lot of the work that I've done is mostly related to flooding. And so those conditions change a lot when it comes to a tornado or to a wildfire. Um, and something else is what we even consider as essential and non-essential. So for an idea, I'm kind of talking about like grocery store is essential and then a gym center is considered non-essential in my model, for example. Um, but in some communities, you know, those recreation centers are places of community and places where people really gravitate to after a disaster. And so um, even the idea of separating essential and non-essential is really dependent on the, the community itself. And so I think a lot of my PhD work is doing, you know, the theoretical side of the model, but something that would really strengthen it is getting some community feedback, you know, working with community leaders um, that I hope to do in the future to really elevate um, is this model worth your time? Are you wanting just some key insights? Are you wanting more of a framework? Um, so that's something that I hope to do in the future. I love that feedback um, because it's it's you're essentially developing something for someone else's utilization. And then how do they actually harness it for their betterment and their community's benefit? So, and I think feedback is quintessential um, and required, I think, for a lot of that. Um, so I, I, I appreciate your time and I appreciate um, all of the, the discussion so far. I do want to ask you one last question before we end is that, you know, reflecting on your career so far, um, you know, 10 years ago, what kind of feedback, what kind of words of wisdom would you have imparted to yourself? Um, so <laughs> I'm going to age myself here, but I am talking back to my 15 year old self. So that's very, <laughs> very back in the, yeah, I did, I did undergrad to PhD straight into it after the, during the pandemic. So everything's kind of been on uh, fast mode, but I think talking to my 15 year old self, I think at the time I didn't realize how, um, I don't want to say how how smart I could be. I think I I didn't realize the that I could be successful in a different space. Um, you know, again, I was in a high school where I had a lot of supportive teachers that 
saw something in me that I didn't realize. They encouraged me to apply to a university outside of my hometown and to apply to scholarships and to do all that. And I think if I didn't have somebody to support me, I don't know if I would have been able to have the um, strength to pursue those opportunities. Um, and so I would probably instill a little bit more self-confidence in myself. Um, but also say that it's it's okay to fail. Uh, I think it would have made that first year in college a lot less stressful if I was more aware that um, failing wasn't this big limitation or this big setback. Um, re research itself, you know, I at everything doesn't go quite perfectly. <laughs> and so that's something that I also would like to tell them is that, hey, as you embark in your college and you're eventually going to do research, it's okay if you have to scrap a three-month project and start from square one, or if you fail that exam that you thought you were going to pass, or, you know, and, and to also find the people that are supportive in your team, uh, supportive in your work, supported in your in your social life, because, um, you know, you're more than just a researcher and a student, you're a whole person. So you want people to be able to help you there. Um, so yeah, I think those main things of be a little bit more confident, um, find the people that are going to be able to support you and um, be able to be okay with some failure along the way. I think it takes a village. Um, I, I love that you, you, um, talked a little bit about that. Um, and it's so apropos. I saw this post on LinkedIn earlier today and it showed two pictures of the world. They were mirror, they were exactly the same image. And they said, look what happens when you fail. The world is the same. And, and I think to what exactly what you're talking about, it's, you know, and, and my point to it was, Yes, the world is the same, but what did you learn from your failure? You may have failed, but there's, that's a learning opportunity, um, especially in research. Um, I think I can at least attest for myself in saying that I actually learned more from failing than I actually learned from succeeding, um, wow. which maybe not is the best, but I think it's it's actually pretty good, frankly. Yeah. Well, you get you have to force yourself to be more creative, right? And then view things in a way you might have not realized it. And so, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. So with that, Natalie, I, I thank you for your time. I thank you for discussing your background, your research. It's some fabulous stuff. Um, I wish you all the best. Um, hopefully you have, what, one, two more years? Cross your fingers. Yeah, I think it's between one to two years, we'll see how it goes. Hoping it's still okay. Okay. crossing both fingers, then yeah. <laughs> we'll see. All right, uh, well, best of luck. Uh, you are ABD at this point, so that's good. Um, and to our listeners, thank you for tuning in today. And don't forget to always ask yourself, Where does your journey stem from? Thanks, all. Bye.